Greetings, friends. I'm Mark Huddle, professor of history at Georgia College and director of the college's Center for Georgia Studies. This is our latest collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's national public radio station. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Epidemiology, the branch of medicine which deals with the incidence, distribution, and control of infectious diseases and preventive health. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that maybe five years ago, a majority of Americans wouldn't have been able to define the term. But now, if my Twitter feed is an accurate indicator, not only can the majority define it, we are all experts in the field. Go figure. In all seriousness, the means and mechanisms by which we as a society combat our current pandemic is inextricably bound up in our contentious political moment. Medicine, or science in general, can't be reduced to benign definitions of reasoned, empirically determined research and treatment protocols. Instead, it is embedded in the socially determined discourses of our bitterly divided culture. Science, unfortunately, has become just another of our institutions to be questioned, doubted, and tragically rejected by millions of Americans. And yet at the same time, it is foundational to our response to a global crisis that has reshaped all of our lives. Our conversation this evening will focus on the history of epidemiology, its evolution over time, and the ways in which its great leaps forward were determined within the context of the wrenching social transformations that remade the world in the 18th and 19th centuries. The Age of Enlightenment in, in Europe and America brought forth new ways of thinking about the world and the people in it. And that new thinking occurred against the backdrop of the transatlantic slave trade, the extension of colonial empires, and the brutality of war. Scientific advancement didn't happen in a vacuum. It was embedded in the political economy of this new and changing world order. The tools of today's epidemiology that are deployed in the fight against COVID originated among enslaved Africans on slave ships, colonized populations in the Caribbean and South Asia, and the casualties and prisoners of war. Our guest, Jim Downs, is the perfect person to help us understand these changes and the place of medicine in science in that tumultuous world. Dr. Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies and History at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. He's the author of Sick from Freedom, African-American Sickness and Suffering During the Civil War and Reconstruction, published by Oxford University Press in 2012, and Stand By Me, The Forgotten History of Gay Liberation, published by Basic Books in 2016. He has edited or co-edited four other books, and he's the co-series editor with Catherine Clinton of the University of Georgia Press's History in the Headlines series. And you can check out his articles in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, the New York Times and Washington Post, as well as many other fine publications. His new book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War 
Transform Medicine, was published in September by the Belknap Press of the Harvard University Press. It is an elegantly written and deeply researched work, striking in both scope and originality. And for our students, Maladies of Empire is a call to the archives. Through his creative reading of the primary sources, Professor Downs gives voice to populations that are overlooked, ignored, or erased from archival records. By doing so, he reclaims the humanity of people whose suffering provided many of the early case studies in the study of infectious diseases. It is a riveting and timely work. Jim Downs, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin by talking a little bit about the book's structure. The chronology of your story begins ostensibly with the events surrounding the tragedy of the Black Hole of Calcutta in 1756, and it ends with the global cholera epidemic in 1865-66. Now, did you have that chronological framework in mind, or did it evolve more organically than that? It evolved more organically. So I actually began the project when I was working on my first book, Sick from Freedom, which was about the unexpected medical disruptions and disorders that happened during the Civil War, namely the fact that over 50,000 formerly enslaved people died of a smallpox epidemic. And just as that epidemic looked like it was coming to an end, a global cholera pandemic broke out. And the United States government efficaciously prevented that epidemic from getting worse. But the smallpox epidemic continued to spread among the black population and really undermine the experience for many formerly enslaved people to enjoy freedom as they were suffering and dying. And so when I finished that book, I wanted to know more about the 1865-66 cholera pandemic. And that brought me to the British archives in London. And there I, the, the, the way that their archives are set up are, is really sort of amazing. I mean, most people like in the United States, when we go to the National Archives, we have to sort of dig through what look like big telephone books, which are called finding aids in order to find a way to guide us through the records. Um, there, a lot of things have been not digitized, but their online catalog is very good in terms of keyword searches, et cetera. So, when I started to look at cholera, it brought me to the Caribbean, and I went and pulled those records. And I looked at these huge, big, thick ledger books written by colonial officials in the Caribbean, and they were describing infectious disease. And so for a very long time, I was just following military records and government records as they were documenting explosions of epidemic outbreaks. And so... As I continued the research from 65 to 66, it brought me forward to the 1870s and 1880s, but I wanted to know what preceded the 65-66 pandemic, and so that led me to go back farther and farther, and I hit a wall around the 1750s. That is to say that people talk about epidemic disease and outbreaks before 1750. They talk about it in the 1600s, 1500s. They talk about it in before the common era. It, it, it exists. 
But the idea of a large number of physicians becoming investigators too, as you described in your opening definition, to become sort of epidemiologists, to understand the spread of infection, to understand how to control the infection, to understand how to prevent the infection, the scale of that increased dramatically. What I began to sort of see in the records by the mid-18th century. Of course, there are people in the 15th century and the 14th century who studied epidemics, but what you really begin to see is a groundswell of interest and, and a move toward, as you said in your earlier comment, a development of scientific thinking that comes out of the Enlightenment. And what sets the stage for that are three main social transformations that have often not necessarily been connected to the development of modern scientific and medicine. And that is the international slave trade, the expansion of the British Empire, and then the Crimean War and the Civil War. Each of these major transformations lead to the explosive outbreak of infectious disease. And each of these pandemics and epidemics compel doctors to become investigators. So as you said in the opening comment, this is the sort of point of my book, is that the rise of epidemiology is not just an idea that develops in New York or in London or in Paris or any of the other major medical centers in the mid-18th to 19th century, but that it, it develops in response to the outbreak of epidemics in these three areas. And because of these three areas, war, colonialism, and slavery, you have a huge growing cohort of doctors writing about epidemics and trying to understand it so that by 1850, a lot of these doctors who have been studying the spread of infectious disease throughout the British Empire form the first epidemiological professional organization in the world, and it's called the London Epidemiological Society, and it's created in 1850. So that's the sort of chronology, the timeline, and the research journey that uh, created the time period for the book. One of the things that I really enjoyed and found most impressive is the close and careful reading of the primary sources, the ways in which you, in a sense, excavate those sources to draw out voices that are, you know, again, I think often either ignored and, and certainly erased. Uh, you, you say in your introduction that, that you rely on black feminist criticism as your main critical methodology. How did that criticism influence your work and the ways that you were thinking about these sources? So it's a great question. We use the term a lot as academics, like the term interdisciplinary, and it gets sort of thrown around a lot. And it's always unclear to me if people really understand what it means or if they really practice it. And basically it means like, what are the tools of an anthropologist, a literary scholar, a historian, a sociologist? We all have different scholarly methods and we all have different ways of analyzing evidence. And I came of age when I was in college, at the height of black feminist criticism in English departments. And that basically was just this effort to say, okay, if we are going to try to recover and find the presence of black people in literature, so black characters in Shakespeare's Othello, black characters in uh, Twain, 
um, we need a certain set of tools to excavate them from the literature, namely in Othello or in Faulkner, they might often be on the margin. And so black feminist theory argued for a very close reading of the representation of black people and to sort of center those characters, not as people who are sort of on the margins of the story, but what does it mean to see the story from their perspective? And what do they tell us about the story? And so Toni Morrison wrote Playing in the Dark is actually the title. And it's about how these different writers are all engaging representations of race. So when you open up a medical journal, the author is a physician. And when you look at the readers, they're most their physicians or medical practitioners of various sorts. And so they're the leading voices. But what I started to see in the case studies were the representations of black and brown people, colonized people, subjugated people, prisoners of war, casualties of war. And instead of saying, well, wait a minute, this is a document written by a doctor, so he's the main protagonist, I said, how can I use the tools of black feminist criticism to take these people who appear in the margin of medical literature and actually center them as an important part of the story? And once I did that, I uncovered a sort of mind-blowing pattern, which is to say that doctors began to learn and see and visualize and understand infection when they studied it among subjugated populations, dispossessed populations, and casualties of war. So doctors would develop these really important, amazing ideas and theories, but the subjects of their studies were often these disenfranchised populations. And so within medical literature, we have a canon of all of these great innovators and what they've done, and they need to be recognized and lauded for all of their advancements. But at the same time, we have to also say that these people were looking at a particular set of subjects, and those subjects were made available to them as a result of the power dynamics uh, created by slavery, colonialism, and war. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Jim Downs about the book Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transform Medicine. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies in History at Gettysburg College. Mark Huddle is the Director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the eighth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. Let's put some flesh on those bones. Let's take up, uh, for instance, the slave trade. Could you walk us through some of the contributions that came out of a process of dehumanization that was then almost ironically able to advance medicine in the 18th and 19th centuries? One of the classic examples is that in the mid-18th century, there's debate with, among physicians on what causes scurvy, which is a result of malnutrition, and what cures it. And so 
many doctors at the time were saying, oh, I think you have to drink wine or you have to eat animal meat or some were saying, well, no, I actually think you have to eat citrus fruit. So there was a debate about both the cause and the treatment. When the slave trade explodes, millions of enslaved Africans are crowded into the bottom of ships where they become malnourished, where they're poorly fed, where they're starving, where they're sick, where they're suffering from many disorders. And one doctor begins to notice that they're suffering from scurvy. So part of it is how does a doctor, and this even goes to our own parent medical situation, like doctors only know about our symptoms based on what we tell them. So doctors depend on patient narratives in order to craft a diagnosis. And so it's not just about a doctor having lots of ideas and lots of knowledge. It's dependent upon what patients say. So various enslaved Africans started talking about pain in certain parts of their bodies. Um, they were showing dizziness. They were basically through interpreters and also just by pointing to parts of their body, um, pointing to the symptoms and the ways in which the disease was presenting itself. So on one level, this one doctor, Dr. Trotter, began to understand scurvy based on what the enslaved Africans were saying. When the ship made its way from West Africa to Antigua, a black woman who sold fruit boarded the ship, and she handed out citrus fruit to all of the enslaved Africans. And what Dr. Trotter noticed was that they immediately recovered from scurvy. And it wasn't simply by consuming the citrus fruit. Rather, it was from directly sucking the juices from the fruit. That's what became most curative. So Trotter then goes back to his advisors, sort of reminded me of my own days of being a graduate student. He goes back to his advisor in London. And he says, listen, I know there's debate about scurvy. I know there's a debate about the cure and the cause. He's like, I've witnessed all of these cases. And the cure is that people have to directly suck juices from the fruit, and that'll restore their health. And his advisor said, yeah, um, nice, nice idea, but no thanks, and, dis and dismissed them. Trotter, however, had the wherewithal to continue to write about it, and he published an article, which he published it in English, but it was eventually translated into German, and then it was published here in the United States and Philadelphia. It became widely accepted. And when he puts forth his argument about how to cure scurvy, he uses the empirical language, clinical language. He said, based on a multitude of cases, and that's how he sort of proved that this particular cure worked. What's fascinating is if you read Trotter in isolation, you would have no idea that the multitude of cases were actually enslaved Africans on a slave ship. And so I sort of was able as a historian to look at a lot of his work and to connect the dots and to sort of see that his understanding and the medical profession's understanding of scurvy became codified through the testimonies of enslaved Africans and then became part of the evidence that basically just sort of stopped the debate on scurvy about what cured it. 
I think Trotter is an interesting case because, if I remember correctly, he eventually speaks out against the slave trade. Is that right? Yeah, and so this is the other kind of very important point about Trotter, and it's it's interesting because he witnesses the crowded conditions on the ship. He witnesses the malnourishment. He becomes appalled by these conditions, and ultimately he testifies in front of the government in favor of abolishing the international slave trade based on what he witnessed. And so his testimony in particular, which I talk about longer in the book, leads to new understandings about the idea, the, the idea of oxygen and how air changes its quality in crowded conditions. Now, that sounds like the most basic idea to us, that, of course, if you cram people into a particular area or region, they'll suffocate. But in the 18th century, there were few places where people were crowded together in, the, in, in that way. This is before the rise of tenements and big cities and industrialization. There were people crowded together in hospitals um, for the poor and prisons, but no one cared about them. So if they died based on the way that the air changes its quality, people didn't care. But when so many people were becoming sick and dying as a result of the international slave trade, then all of a sudden there's an interest in that. And so this new understanding about how the air changes its quality, which becomes seen through the example of the international slave trade, actually coincides with the rise of chemistry as an academic field. Chemistry hadn't been around prior to that. It was this sort of province of alchemists, and it was considered, you know, the work of court jesters. It wasn't necessarily a rigorous, validated field of scientific inquiry. It's the 1750s with the rise of the scientific revolution that validates chemistry. And so it's chemistry, the rise of chemistry combined with the international slave trade that becomes the point that it actually leads to reform. And Trotter becomes the sort of voice, the testimony, the doc, you know, the clinical expert to prove the problems on the ship. Oh, I think what gets me about that story, about, about Trotter's experience and then his decision to testify before the House of Commons, is that, I mean, part of the reason that he's on the ship in the first place is not just to serve a medical role, but there's an economic role in the sense that, you know, he's trying to keep this human cargo alive so that, you know, in a sense to protect the investment of the ship's owners. There seems to be this tension, maybe that's the right word, between the maintenance of a system that is contingent upon the dehumanization of human beings. But in order to do that, you have to acknowledge the humanity of that cargo and create means and mechanisms in order to keep it healthy or healthier so that it can go to market. Yeah. Yeah. But I would be careful on that because I think that, and this is what I see. I first, I always kind of like push against this idea of dehumanization because it's actually a problematic term. It almost feels like euphemistic, like they become dehumanized. What does it mean? I, I think we need to be more precise. I think we need to say, they were beaten, they were starved to death, they were raped, they were mutilated, 
they were humiliated. Like we actually have to use the words, but then more importantly, they're not actually seeing, like I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot. They're not actually seeing their humanity and thereby they're putting a position on the boat in order to protect their humanity. It's more like they're seeing life and they want to keep the life going. In the antebellum period in the U.S., Charlotte Fett, a historian, has sort of drawn a really clear connection between the language that slaveholders use to describe livestock, and it's the same language they use to describe enslaved people. So they've come up with this term soundness, like you want to buy a cow, you want to buy a new horse. Is it sound? That's a measurement of their life, like of their health, of their ability to perform labor, of or not they're going to be useful as livestock. Similarly, when these people are looking at enslaved Africans, I don't think they're putting the doctors on because they have a notion of the human. I think it's more like we need to protect this life. We need to think about this life, and I don't mean in a 20th century kind of human rights way. We need to think about this life in the same way we think about the life of an animal. Like, you have to feed an animal. You have to make sure the animal's taken care of. So I think that's a better analogy. I think the whole human thing, I understand why people frame it that way, but I actually think it becomes less useful because they don't care about them. They're, they're actually like, I think like the Steven Spielberg film Amistad does an excellent description of like showing how people are fed on the ship. And it's like, they're just throwing the food out. They're just making them, they're just pouring in their hands in the way that like someone would, would feed hungry dogs in a kennel. So they're, it's not they're recognizing their humanity. They're recognizing that this is an object that has a life. Unlike other kinds of objects that they're being used, it needs to be taken care of. I'm just thinking it through, I just think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, at least it affected Trotter enough that he decided to testify against the practice, right? Absolutely. And so Trotter is then trying to use a language that says, okay, these people are human, and he's then trying to do it. But his deployment is not based on their humanity. It, it's rather that it's just to preserve it and to preserve their life. And then when he's on there, he then begins to see the connection to their humanity. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Jim Downs about the book Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transform Medicine. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies in History at Gettysburg College. Mark Huddle is the Director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the eighth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. Let's move on to the role that imperialism plays in this. I want to be careful here, too, if our, our listeners 
I hope understand that you know one of the things that's so great about this book is the ways in which we can see the ways that the slave trade, the taking of empire and, and war are are interconnected. But I also think it's useful to walk through these things so that we can get a sense of the ways in which, in this instance, uh, how the colonial system advanced the study of infectious diseases. What is it about colonialism that creates the conditions for the study of infectious diseases and the evolution of epidemiology? So I think the best answer is, and it sounds kind of boring, but it becomes fascinating as a historian in terms of looking at sources, the answer is really just how the bureaucracy creates a network that connects physicians across different times and places. So for example, say there was an outbreak of plague in the 1400s. You might have a particular physician trying to respond to that or a healer dealing with that. But there was really very little mechanism in place for a doctor to really be in touch with a doctor who was 20 miles away forget 200 miles away, forget 1,000 miles away. And so what happened is that doctors may have worked often in isolation. And so the section on colonialism looks at the ways in which the administrative structures of the military create a kind of network and create a mechanism to keep doctors in touch with each other. Because this is also before things like the creation of the American Medical Association and other kinds of professional societies. So the one doctor I look at a lot is this guy by the name of Gavin Milroy, and he studies quarantine in the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt. He's involved in all of these different things in the 1840s. In 1850, he's sent to Jamaica, and there's an outbreak of cholera, very similar to the outbreak of COVID today. Think about the spring of 2020 when COVID first broke out. News reports um, were coming out of Italy and Iran and New York because those were three major areas where the cases of COVID and doctors and public health officials and the World Health Organization created various apparatus for doctors to share information and to communicate and describe symptoms and prevention, et cetera. Colonialism allows for someone like Milroy to be in Jamaica and to see what's happening in St. Kitts, in Cuba, Um, even in the southern part of the United States, he's able to send out dispatches and require doctors to submit reports that detail what's happening. Once he collects this information, he now has what we would say in epidemiological terms is like a bird's eye view. I mean, actually, it's much more colloquial term, but you have like a bird's eye view. What you would say in epidemiological terms is you have like medical surveillance. Like you can now sort of see across a place. And so the reality of it is, is that colonialism stationed military officials throughout the world. And it then localized a particular administrative structure that facilitated the creation and distribution of reports that allowed doctors to see epidemics in different places. And so by 1850, a lot of these physicians, Gavin Milroy, a guy by the name of McWilliam, um, who was in, who I talk about, who was in Cape Verde, different places, they come back to London and they form an epidemiological society. They had seen epidemics in Buenos Aires and in the Ottoman Empire and the Caribbean and India. 
And it was basically in sharing those experiences that they developed a society. And then the other part of it is that colonialism is about violence. So this is not a sanguine story. This is about how does colonialism, through the use of military power, provide doctors with access to people's bodies, provide doctors with access to, to communities, provide doctors with the knowledge. So when we think about the tools, and you mentioned this in your opening remarks, when we think about the tools that we're using to control the pandemic today, those are tools that actually came out of colonial practice and are now being used as a way to understand the spread of epidemics. Let's segue from that. That's a, that's a nice way to consider the impact of war on epidemiology and on the study of infectious diseases and on things like sanitation. As I think we've already mentioned, the book focuses on two major 19th century conflicts, the British war with Russia in the Crimea and the American Civil War. So let's start with, with Crimea. What, what was happening in that conflict that proved so important to the development of epidemiology and public health? The first point is that it's the first real modern war. And by that, what I mean is that journalists are reporting on the ground and people are learning about what's happening in real time. And so what happens is one journalist is reporting all of the poor and terrible conditions that are unfolding in Crimea. And it grabs the attention of a young Florence Nightingale, who, as I explained in the book, eventually like writes to government officials and gets permission to bring a core nurses to Crimea. So the traditional story of Florence Nightingale is that she's considered iconically as the lady with the lantern, that you see her at night and caring for and providing comfort to soldiers, sort of like modern day hospice nurses. And often she's regarded as this sort of leading, sort of pioneering voice in nursing. But in actuality, um, Nightingale becomes extraordinarily interested in what causes the spread of disease because what she witnesses is that when soldiers are brought into the hospital, more are dying. <laughs> they're, instead of becoming better and becoming healthy as a result of, of being in the hospital, they're dying. And she attributes that in large part to the fact that people, that there's you know, something wrong with the hospitals because she witnesses what's happening in the French hospitals and the Russian hospitals and the morbidity and mortality rates are not nearly as high. And so she begins this massive effort to basically start studying ventilation. How many people can fit in a room? How do you build a hospital that has, that's, that, that, that adequately can house people? And so she then returns to England. She meets with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, and she then becomes introduced to Prince Albert's Tudor, who is like the founding father of statistics. And in an era before germ theory and microbes, she turns to statistics, things like mortality rates, infection rates, number of people who recovered, because that kind of data is the only way that she can begin to really see the epidemic and to see what interventions are working. And so she becomes immersed within this world of quantitative analysis. And Yet she's remembered as 
only the sort of, as not only, but as, yeah, as only the nurse. And she's not seen as an epidemiological thinker. Now, most historians, if you said, oh, Florence Nightingale was involved in statistics, they'd be like, okay, yeah, I kind of knew that, or I was involved. I mean, they would know a little bit. But when we actually create a pantheon of scientific leaders from this period, she's often not included as an epidemiologist, largely because she was never invited into the London Epidemiological Society. She was invited into the, she was the first woman actually inducted into the statistics organization. And she's recognized in that world, but she's not recognized as an epidemiologist. So when I was doing my research and I was reading through the sources, and again, this goes back to your first question of like, how did black feminist criticism um, help me think through the records and the problems in the records. What I thought was like, wait a minute, everything that she's doing is the work of an epidemiologist, but she's been marginalized as simply a nurse, which, and by the way, is an amazing, important career, but she was also a thinker because when she returns to London, she's basically bedridden for the rest of her life. And she continues to receive reports about medical and health conditions in India and even then, she's calling for sanitation and she's making various epidemiological arguments. So that's how the Crimean War fits in. And then when the Civil War breaks out, just briefly, they know about Florence Nightingale. And it leads to a similar development. Nightingale's part of what's called the British Sanitary Commission. And then here in the United States, as a result of the Civil War, there's something called the U.S. Sanitary Commission. And both are invested in epidemiological questions. Well, again, that's a perfect way to get us into the American Civil War, because there are some very interesting stories that you tell, some of them really quite disturbing. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Jim Downs about the book Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transform Medicine. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies in History at Gettysburg College. Mark Huddle is the Director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the eighth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. But I want to frame our discussion of, of the Civil War by circling back. You mentioned James McWilliam, the British naval surgeon, and his investigations right. into the yellow fever outbreak in the Cape Verde Islands. Towards the end of your analysis, you say the, the following, and I'm, I'm quoting this directly. Uh, McWilliams's investigation is an example of how imperialism produced scientific knowledge rather than how scientific knowledge was used to justify and propel imperial conquest. Uh, later in the book, you comment, uh, again, this is a, a, a quote, uh, military and colonial bureaucracy functioned as a subregime of knowledge production. 
those are really interesting points to me. Um, so much of the literature that I've, I've encountered has at least inferred that the opposite was true, that scientific knowledge broadly defined was, was often used as a justification for slavery and for imperial expansion. Now, this is all kind of a long build for my next question, because the, the experience of the American Civil War seems to stand that idea on its head, because certainly the U.S. military and organizations such as the U.S. Sanitary Commission you know, applied these new methods uh, of sanitation and epidemiological medicine, but they also seem to spend an inordinate amount of time compiling evidence of, of racial difference and the implied inferiority of, of the free people. What factors help us to kind of understand the, 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 these differences in the American setting? So uh, let me just go back to the first point because it's important for me to like explain what that means. So when I said science is often used to guide imperialism and my work is showing how, how the reverse, um, this is all about time. <laughs> this is all about when you're looking at. So in other words, in the later 19th century, in the earlier 20th century, when you have the rise of microbiology and, and bacteriology and germ theory, that sort of arms government authorities to go into places like the Philippines or Port City, China, or other parts of the world, and basically undermine and question and dismantle those medical systems and replace it with germ theory and replace it with understandings of bacteria. So that's how science kind of helps to support imperialist endeavors. What I realized is more like the example with Trotter, like he's thrown on the boat. Yes, he's supposed to provide care and comfort to people, you know, deal with whatever health disorders come up. But ultimately, as a result of his experience, he then creates this brand new, or he, like, ah, he writes this brand new article on scurvy. And so it's like the imperial project helped to inform his ideas. Now, of course, that also happens in the Philippines, happens later in other places. But what I saw from the records was less of doctors saying, we've created these new ideas in England, in the metropole, and now let's use those new ideas to aid our imperial agenda. It doesn't happen that way. It's the same with Cape Verde. Like, they don't understand how the yellow fever outbreak happened. And so they end up creating a questionnaire and an investigative method. And then that investigative method through imperialism then becomes the foundation for epidemiological investigation. So that, that's part of it. Now, the, the thing about the Civil War, the American Civil War, it's really interesting is that, uh, and this is a lot of people kind of miss, miss this point, and I understand why it's kind of controversial. The British are definitely, by all metrics, racist. They, I mean, Nightingale absolutely believes that the British are of the higher stock and that people in South Asia are lower. And she definitely believes in racial heredity and all of these different kinds of categories. But when she's trying to understand the outbreak of infectious disease in India, she doesn't just say, oh, it's because they're poor or because they're less civilized. She's really looking at, well, what's happening with the sanitation? What's happening with the water? Now, she might say things too, right? And I don't mean to be cavalier about it. She might say, well, you know, part of it is because of their dirty habits, but she's also measuring and doing quantitative analysis. She might blame them for it, 
but she's not using race as an argument as to why, simply why this is happening. She's actually doing other things. But in the United States, um, when they began the effort to create sanitation, they definitely believe in racial hierarchy. But they then begin this major effort to measure how tall black people are, to ask doctors to fill out a questionnaire, which describes everything from dietary factors to sexual factors. And so they then are not so interested in measuring how big the rooms are or, you know, is there ventilation or is, are things unsanitary? They're falling back on an argument of pulmonary capacity. Um, the difference, the idea of having, you know, if you're mixed race, if you are in the parlance of the 19th century, mulatto, that has a factor in your health. They're exclusively, <laughs> like, honing in on racial identity as the only metric, whereas the others are, like, thinking about race, and race is tied, obviously, to sanitation and sanitary thinking, but they're not just chalking it up simply as an argument about race. So that's, that's the, that's the argument that I'm I'm trying to make, and and, and that's the point that I, I thought was really most apparent in the Civil War was that the Civil War period, the Union efforts to free Black people, is all done in this narrative of equality. And what we begin to sort of see immediately after the Civil War is the rise of Black political mobilization, the support of then the Republican Party, who were the champions of of, of Black people the creation of the Reconstruction Amendments that led to citizenship and suffrage. But the Sanitary Commission is documenting and reporting on racial difference and thereby creating an archive of data that shows inferiority. So there's a medical narrative that's competing with the political narrative that argues that Black people are inherently inferior. It never ceases to amaze me when I encounter uh, the U.S. Sanitary Commission research, the resonance that that research has into the late 19th and then into the 20th century. You know, I, I encountered it, I think, for the first time as a graduate student when I was engaging Frederick Hoffman's uh, Race, Traits, and Tendencies Right. In the 1890s, which provided the foundation for actuarial tables for prudential insurance. And if you look at his footnotes, he's citing the research of the Sanitary Commission. So it would have been mainstream science. It wasn't you know, mainstream science at the, at the time. But the footnotes, that, that data ends up becoming one of the foundational elements in the ways in which people are either granted or denied life insurance in the 20th century. Uh, it's, uh, it's astonishing. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Jim Downs about the book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transform Medicine. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Chair of Civil War Era Studies in History at Gettysburg College. Mark Huddle is the Director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. 
This conversation is the eighth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. starting to come up on some time constraints here, but I do have a couple more questions for you. And this one, you mentioned that you began thinking about this book as early as 2011. Uh, so well, right. well before the current pandemic and the political wars over everything from mask mandates to quarantines to vaccinations. But, you know, did the meltdown influence you at all as you were trying to bring this book to publication? Did it require you to rethink certain aspects of the story you were trying to tell? Um, to be honest with you, not really. I mean, I, I, I almost felt more emboldened to use what I found to help educate people about what was going on. And so, you know, it was an interesting moment because, as you said in your opening remarks, you know, five years ago, people wouldn't understand the word epidemiology. Five years ago, my students really wouldn't understand quarantine, lockdown, social distancing, contact tracing. Uh, you know, and I talk about in my book in the 1840s how contact tracing first gets developed. Um, so my point is that I kind of was like, hey, listen, like <laughs> I've done the work here and I'm familiar with a lot of this stuff. And I was trying to use history as a way to calm people down and elucidate some debates and to also question some things. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I found really frustrating and people sort of pegged me, like sort of questioned my politics and ideology. And that was around the, the quarantine. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a registered Democrat, <laughs> et cetera. But, you know, the argument is that the notion of quarantine developed um, something like, you know, in the 13th and 14th century. By the end of the book, the last chapter, you have the creation of something called the International Sanitary Commission, which ultimately is like a predecessor to the WHO, the World Health Organization. And, and all of these various representatives throughout Europe meet in Constantinople and they meet in other places for the, for the next couple of years. And they share notes about how quarantine works and it doesn't work. And they're trying to actually make an argument about, well, if we are to impose it, you know, how long? And, 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 and what cost is it to the, you know, economy? So when we were having questions about quarantine and lockdown, people were considered to be, you know, you know, not caring because they were bringing up questions about the economy. But that's part of a larger debate, public health and quarantine are always at the center of quarantine debates. And so, um, and so that was part of it. And then the other part of it was that um, since the 19th century, there were very clear guidelines that always stipulated that if you were to do this, that there needs to be a, a start date and a stop date. And I was living in New York um, at the time, and this is before many people began to question um, Andrew Cuomo, but I... 
was questioning Andrew Cuomo because, you know, he would say, okay, well, this is when it's going to end. or We're going to flatten the curve at this point, and then something else would happen, and you'd be like, no, we're not doing it that way. You know, so it was maddening in a lot of ways to kind of see things fall out. There were ways that, you know, sanitation is important, but you know, worrying about cleaning off your desktop and your surface or letting your groceries sit in your garage for two days before you actually wash them off. I mean, to avoid COVID was silly. You're going to get COVID if you're within contact with someone who's infected. So if you're that worried, like, stay away from people, <laughs> social distance. Uh, it's not this sort of idea that it's on the surface, that it's there. I mean, you know, microscopically they can see it, but it's not necessarily transmissible if it's on the surface. So a lot of these ideas I was trying to sort of bring out at that time. And, you know, I think some people were just very scared. Some people were not willing to listen. So it was just problematic. Well, you've been thinking about these issues for, for quite a long time. Let's finish. I want to give you the, the last word. If there was one lesson that you, that you hope readers draw from your study, what would it be? I think the most important thing is to say that the field of epidemiology did not originate by doctors in London or simply by medical practitioners in New York. It grew out of scientific investigation about the spread of infectious disease among enslaved people on slave ships, among colonized people throughout the empire, and among prisoners of war and other dispossessed populations. Jim, congratulations on an excellent book. Again, the book is called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine, published by Belknap Press of the Harvard University Press. Jim Downs, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Jim Downs is far too careful a historian to engage in the sin of presentism. At the same time, given our current situation, the lessons of maladies of empire resonate. For this reader, my experience with the book was visceral. As I learned about the history of epidemiology and its evolution and professionalization, at the same moment that transatlantic slavery and European imperialism were changing the world, I was reminded just how much institutions reflect the societies in which they emerge. Our institutions reflect society. They're shaped by the structures of power that define society. It's a simple idea, I'd call it common sense, but I know that many people currently resist accepting that reality. They're afraid of engaging the past in any meaningful or honest way if it means acknowledging the pain and suffering and conflict that lays at the heart of our histories. They are especially resistant to confronting the legacies of those conflicts in our present. Modern science and medicine did not evolve in a vacuum, but evolved in rapidly changing societies that reflected stunning disparities in power. 
Issues such as quarantines and vaccines caused tremendous controversy in the halls of government. And yet the inequities in those societies created windows of opportunity for the advancement of scientific methods, some of which we benefit from today. So much about our current political discourse during the time of COVID is troubling. But I think a lot of that narrative on both sides of our political divide is false, or at least simplistic. The world, we are told, is divided between those who place their hopes in the triumph of science in the face of pandemic and those who deny the efficacy of science and what they perceive the role of government to be in promulgating the sense that science is the pathway out of our current crisis. And many of us marvel at the profound ignorance expressed in this debate. But what Maladies of Empire teaches us is that the story is far more complicated than that. Science and medicine are institutions have always been bound up in the politics of the moment. Both have shaped and are shaped by that politics. Now as our confidence in the capacity of our institutions to respond to crises wanes, it should surprise no one that the devastation of COVID should foster mistrust, conflict, and controversy. Once again, Jim Downs' book is Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine, published by Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. Check it out. And that is all our time. Thank you all so much for tuning into this broadcast. My name is Mark Huddle, and I'll see you next time.